Well, good morning, ladies. Yeah, I love it. We're responsive. Yay. What is the best news that you could ever receive? And I don't just mean good news, but the very best news. The thing that your heart longs to hear more than anything. Go ahead and picture it in your mind. I bet something came to mind immediately. For some of you, maybe it's financial freedom. Maybe you long to hear the telephone ring. Hello? Congratulations, this is not a scam. A very wealthy person has left you their entire estate and you can live comfortably, not just comfortably, but abundantly for the rest of your life. Okay, I'm immediately thinking lake house, vacation to Colorado, beautiful things, right? Yes, Laura gets me. Um, Or maybe the thing that you're longing to hear is to be declared healthy, to walk in for that MRI appointment and for the doctor to go, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I, I don't know what happened, but we might have made a mistake. You don't have cancer. You are completely healthy. I mean, can't you just feel the palpable joy, the relief? I mean, you can go home and throw out all of those tuna casseroles in your deep freezer because you don't need to eat them anymore and you don't need people bringing them to you anymore. That is good news. Or maybe the thing that you most long for is to get that text. Mom, I'm sorry, can we talk? You long for that reconciliation. You long for that child to be in your family Christmas photo and to see him or her again and know that he is well. All of us know what that one thing is, that one thing that we so long to receive. But now imagine this, take it one step further. Take that good news And imagine that you knew it was absolutely, certainly, without a doubt, going to come true in five years. Would that change anything? Would that change how you live today, knowing what your future held? I'll be honest, a year ago, bodily resurrection functionally did not matter to me. Yes, I affirmed it, and every time I went to a funeral for a grandparent, I eagerly looked forward to meeting him or her again. But day to day, bodily resurrection really didn't affect my life, and it certainly wasn't the very best news that I longed to hear. But the day my baby boy died on April 14th, everything changed. And that one thing that I longed to hear more than anything else in the world, David is alive. And so as you can imagine, the topic of bodily resurrection is deeply important to me. For the past seven months, this is something I've been wrestling with. I've been questioning God. I've been studying. I've been praying. This matters to me. And because I'm the pastor and I'm over the scheduling, you can bet I assigned myself this topic. (laughs) And when Alice said, I'd like to do resurrection, I said, I'm sorry. You can do the last one. This one's mine. So... There you go. Why did I want to do this? Because this matters, ladies. Because knowing my future and the future of David and the future of all believers literally gives me hope. It gets me out of bed each morning. It changes how I live today. Tim Keller says it this way. Christian hope has to do with the ultimate future state, not the immediate We are by nature hope-based creatures, and we live in light of what we think our future is. 
you can see where I'm going with this. We can't just hold belief in the resurrection of the body in the abstract because whether or not you're a believer, this changes everything. Your belief about life, about life everlasting, about resurrection of the body, it changes how you grieve, how you live, how you die, and everything in between. It informs everything. So what you think your ultimate future is affects how you live today. And so I have just two questions for you. What do you think your ultimate future is? And how does it affect your life today? As you know, we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed. And I love that we're in the final section because it's the hope section. Last week, we covered forgiveness of sins, God's acceptance. This week, we covered bodily resurrection, the fact that God rescues us from death. And next week, we will cover life everlasting, the fact that we get to be with God forever. And ladies, while these are hopeful topics, they're also weighty topics. They're topics that the early Christians wrestled with, and they're topics that we wrestle with today. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul addressed many of these topics in his letter to the Corinthians. And so we're going to be spending our time today in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, to give you a little bit of the background, the Corinthian believers were somewhat where we are today. You see, they were Gentile converts, they lived in a wealthy city, and it was steeped with pagan idolatry and philosophy. They were believers, but they had lots of questions, and they were especially confused about this thing called <laughs> resurrection. So they wrote to Paul and asked him a plethora of questions, including, is there a resurrection of the dead? If so, how are they raised? And with what kind of body will they come? Now, if you have small children or grandchildren, or perhaps you think back to your elementary school days, you may be familiar with the five W's. Uh, it's a basic um, way to gather information, and oftentimes kids are supposed to write reports like this. It's who, what, when, where, why, and sometimes how. And this is essentially what the Corinthians believers are asking of Paul. Paul, tell us everything. We do not understand. Give us the who, what, when, where, why, and the how. And because Paul is an expert teacher, he systematically addresses their questions. And these are the questions we'll walk through. Why does the resurrection of the body matter? Is there a resurrection of the dead? And if so, what will our bodies look like? And why does this matter for you and for me today? So starting in 15 verse 1, Paul writes, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and, which, and on which you have now taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised, I'm sorry, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Did you catch that? Paul begins his explanation of the resurrection by tying the resurrection first to the gospel and then to Jesus. In verse 4, he says, he died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. And then he physically appeared. Ladies, not just did Christ die, rose from the dead, but it's historically verifiable. This is the basis of our faith. If Christ did not raise from the dead, this does not matter. But we have confidence that he did. And so then Paul goes on and he lists all the people that Jesus appeared to. And he emphatically says, yes, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead. 
And then he makes it personal because he knows that like all good teachers, you have to make it personal for your students. You need to whet their appetite a little bit. And so picking up in verse 12, he says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. In fact, um, I'm sorry, I lost my place. In fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So why is the resurrection of the dead important? If there isn't a resurrection of the dead, then first, Christ hasn't risen. Second, your preaching is useless. Third, your faith is useless, futile, and pitiable. This is a great list, isn't it? Fourth, believers are guilty of bearing false witness about God. Fifth, the dead aren't raised, your loved ones are lost. Sixth, you're still in your sins and without a risen redeemer. Seventh, you're without hope. Paul's really negative, but he's not done yet. He keeps going. If you skip down to verse 30, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So we could also add to this depressing list that if the dead aren't raised, eighth, it's useless to suffer for Christ. Ninth, there is no meaning for life. And 10th, we should just all do whatever we want because there are no consequences. Only the here and the now matters. And it's no wonder that people like the Apostle Peter found Paul's letters hard to read and hard to understand. Do you feel the despair and the hopelessness of the fact that if there's no resurrection of the dead, there is no good news? There is none. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it this way. And if Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark, as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who have died hoping in Christ and in the resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. And I would say amen to that. Because it's not just enough to have a belief. A belief that isn't true is useless. But if Christ was raised from the dead, and if we have a future bodily resurrection to look forward to, then this changes everything. It changes how I live today. It changes how you live today. You know, some of my favorite verses in the Bible begin with, but God. And usually before those, you've read things like descriptions of punishments, fear, consequences, um, harsh things, brutality, blah, 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 we're depressed. And then the author suddenly pivots. And suddenly he paints a picture of joy, hope, truth, beauty, wholeness. And what moves us from that dark to that light, from that brokenness to the wholeness? God, but God. So look with me in verse 20. 
But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, if we'd studied this passage a little bit more in depth, you would have noticed that prior to this, Paul has used nine ifs. If this, if this, if this, if this. Talking about if the resurrection isn't true, the despair that we have. But now Paul's argument is no longer if. It's no longer conditional. It is absolute. It is factual. It is a straightforward statement. And so he says... The truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. I just love that line. The first of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. Praise God. Now, the term first fruits isn't a word that we commonly use today, but if you think about an agricultural harvest, or probably not many of us think of that, Amy might, some of you that grew up on farms might. I don't think of agricultural harvests, but pretend. If you think of an agricultural harvest, I'm told that the first fruits are the first things that you gather in. They're the sample, if you will, of the nature and the quality of the crop that you're going to bring in later. And ladies, this is what Christ's resurrection is. He is the first fruit, if you will, of the resurrection. Because Christ has risen, we have confidence that as believers, we will rise too. And that's good news. In writing this message, I've struggled with how much of my personal story to share because, ladies, the story of the resurrection is not about Jason and David and myself. It's about the hope that we all have. It's about the good news that we can all cling to. It's about the risen Jesus, the resurrection of our bodies, and the story ultimately ending happily thanks to the redemptive work of Christ but I don't know how to illustrate it other than sharing with you what I've experienced and what I've learned. Over and over, I have cried out two things to the Lord. The first is that I don't want to be here. And the second is that this is not how it's supposed to be. They've become my cries of lament. My coworkers have heard them a lot. Sisters, I have never known pain and anguish and soul-wrenching sorrow like this season of mourning David. Mamas aren't supposed to buy infant-sized caskets. Dads aren't supposed to hold their sons as they take their last breath. Parents should not visit their babies in cemeteries. This is not how it is supposed to be. And quite honestly, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here in this part of my story. I don't want any of this. I don't want the mourning, the loss, the aching, seeing my best friend grieve the loss of his son, longing to hold my baby boy. I don't want to be here. And we all know this. Death is not unique to me. We've all experienced death and grief and loss in a myriad of ways. And we know that the sting of death is not just the separation of us from our loved ones. It's the separation of body and soul. And that is not how God intended it. Death is the enemy to all that it means to have life and life abundant. As Jesus said, a thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come so that they can have real and eternal life. 
more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Death is a thief that stills our loved ones and that takes their very life breath. But this is not the end of the story. Death does not have the final say. Indeed, this is not how it is supposed to be, and this is not how it will be. This is not how it will be. So picking back up in verse 22, Paul explains how as believers we will be made alive in Christ. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after, all, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Kelly Capick in Embodied Hope describes it this way. We are saved from the tyranny of death. As Paul vividly puts it, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Our aches and our sufferings reach a climax in death. It is what all of our pain points to. Our strength will ultimately give out, our breath will cease, and our bodies will become lifeless. Yet to this apparent final word, the word comes and breathes new life. This word, which originally spoke the world into existence, now promises that he will raise us from death to life. Not metaphorically, but physically. God will once again breathe life into us, just as he did at creation. So let's keep going, because it keeps getting better. So Paul has already established that Christ was resurrected, therefore we can hope in the resurrection of our bodies. And starting in verse 35, Paul now answers the burning question we've all been dying to know. Will I look like a supermodel in heaven? <laughs> Just kidding. Not really, but uh, kidding a little bit. What will our resurrected bodies look like? While we can't know everything about what our glorified bodies will look like, we do get a lot of details. In verses 42 through 54, we learn that the earthly body is perishable. It exists in dishonor. It exists in weakness. It is natural. It is made in the image of the man of dust, which is Adam, and it is mortal. But what do we have to look forward to in our resurrection bodies? We look forward to our bodies being imperishable, raised in glory, raised in power, spiritual. We will bear the image of the man of heaven, which is Jesus, and our bodies will be immortal. Now, in looking over this list, it's really easy to think, okay, got it. Earthly bodies, bad. Spiritual bodies, good. But that's not what God declared when he created us, is it? He said that our bodies are good. Our physicality is good. We are made in the image of God. Through our bodies, we exist in relationship to one another, and we bring glory and honor to God. So it's not that our mortal bodies are bad. They're good. It's just that we have something even better to look forward to. In verse 53, Paul writes, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Did you notice the clothing imagery here? The transformation from the mortal body to the immortal is not the taking away. It's not as if you lay down who you are and get something weird and strange. Instead, it's the putting on. It's the mortal being clothed with the immortal. Imagine getting a beautiful new coat that covers you from head to toe and makes you completely new. And not like shopping spree, I look cute new, genuinely new 
the clothing of the mortal with the immortal. Ladies, why does this matter and get me excited? Because it's not the, it's not the resurrection of our bodies. I'm sorry, because it's not the redemption. Good grief, I need to read my sentence. Okay. <laughs> because it's resurrection of our bodies. There we go. Not redemption from our bodies. It's the resurrection of our bodies, not redemption from our bodies. We will still be ourselves. We're not going to be robots with the same voice and the same body and the same hair color. We still get to be uniquely who we are, only more so. Randy Alcorn writes, Because of the fall and the curse, we have never been or seen human beings who are fully functional as God's image bearers, conveying the brightness and majesty of his being. So we get to be us, only more so. Paul continues in verse 54. When the perishable have been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then this saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, of your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if I'm honest, I kind of feel like Paul is letting me down here. It's like, we've all been in a pep talk and he's been like, okay team, good news. We have a lot to look forward to. We have resurrection of the body. Christ is returning. Oh, but wait, that's in the future. That's not now. Death still reigns today. Still hurts. Bummer. And personally, I hate the word when because it's not the future. It's not now. And that's why personally it's really hard for me to sing the song Christ is Risen. You know the one where we get to say a curse word in church and it feels quite scandalous. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the one where we declare at the top of our lungs, oh death, where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your victory? And we don't just like say oh hell, we like yell it. Okay, this is an Easter song. Yes, that one. I'm in a season, ladies, where I can't honestly declare that because now hurts. And I know that now hurts for many of you too. We eagerly long and we look forward to the resurrection of our bodies and to life everlasting. But what do we do today in the here and now? What do we do when now hurts? Well, friends, this is a question I've been asking for a while. And I don't have the answers by any means, but I do believe that there are five things that God wants to remind us of as we eagerly long and look forward to the bodily resurrection. The first is this. We remind ourselves of where we are in the story. And by this, I mean that we acknowledge that we live in between the two comings of Christ. We live between his first coming and his second coming. And while we don't yet have all the benefits that we'll enjoy when Christ returns, ladies, we do have a lot. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have God with us. Our salvation is secure. We know because of the faithfulness of God that when he promises that he will return and make all things new and that we will be resurrected, we can take that to the bank. We have hope. I've said it this way in my journal. If it looks like death is winning then it's not the end, but the messy middle. In the end, death is defeated and Christ is victorious. So this is not the end. It's the long pause while we wait expectantly for the end. 
Ladies, some of us need to be reminded of that today. We need to write, I'm in the messy middle on a post-it note and stick it to our mirrors. We need to call a friend or maybe the ladies in your Bible study group and say, hey, remind me of that on the days when I have a really hard day. Remind me that this is not all there is, that one day all things will be made new. So we remind ourselves of where we are in this story. And second, we cling to the risen Jesus. I'll just be honest, I am embarrassed to admit this, but until recently, I did not realize that Jesus still has a resurrected body. Jesus, fully God, fully man, still has a physical resurrected body and sits at the right hand of God the Father. And this just blows my mind. How can a glorified yet still physical body sit next to God? And yet he does. And do you know what this makes possible? Capic writes, if Jesus never rose from the tomb, then the only voice of decay, then only the voice of decay speaks truth. But if Jesus did indeed rise, then his voice speaks through and over our pain and our struggle. In other words, death doesn't define us. Life does. His risen and his remaining life. So what voice are you listening to? Is it the voice of decay or the voice of truth? Let's cling to the voice of truth, to the risen Jesus. Third, we live in light of the future. Christians are Easter people living from and toward the Easter experience of a new creation. And as believers, we have the duty of living in the power of the Holy Spirit and declaring to others the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of all things. Because ladies, we do have a God who is a redeemer, who is a restorer, who is bringing good out of all that is evil. And we seek to partner with him in that work of restoration. We ask him to transform us with his love as missionary disciples. And then we go out and seek to transform the city with that same love. We live in light of the future. Fourth, we treasure the living hope that is ours in Christ. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Think about that for a moment. In whom or in what is your hope? We all want a hope that doesn't disappoint us, a hope that can't be taken away from us, a hope that won't uh, perish, spoil, or fade. But the reality is people, circumstances, events, relationships, they will eventually fail us. They're not big enough or sure enough to contain our hope. The only person who can contain that hope is Jesus. Ladies, we have a resurrection hope because we have a resurrected Savior. And so we treasure the living hope that is ours in Christ. And finally, because of all of this, we can stand firm in the gospel. Paul concludes this section of his letter in verse 58 with these words, Therefore, therefore meaning everything that has come before, before this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
Stand firm. It's the main point of Paul's entire defense of the resurrection. He started in verse one with the fact that we can stand firm in the gospel, and now he concludes with stand firm again. Why can we stand firm in spite of persecution and sufferings and hardships? Because we know our ultimate future because we know that Christ is our risen redeemer, because we know that new creation has already begun and it will reach its culmination in the return of Christ. So I'd like to close with a devotional from one of my favorite books, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And this is called Hope. When we use the word hope, we say things like, I hope we win. It's like wishing for something we're not sure will happen. But in the Bible, hope means being absolutely certain something will happen. Jonathan Edwards, a preacher, said there are three things we can hope in if we belong to Jesus. First, God will turn even the bad things around for your good in the end. Two, your good things can't ever be taken from you. And three, the best things are yet to come. It doesn't mean that everything in our story is happy today, but that God is making the story end happily for the world and for his children. Friends, Jesus is returning. We will one day have resurrected bodies. We will be united with our loved ones who are believers. And I will be reunited with my sweet little David. Friends, the best things are yet to come. This is very good news indeed. And let's live in light of it. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the good news that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you are with us today in the presence of trials and hardships and sufferings. And that we are not alone. We thank you that you are working all things for your glory and your good. And that we have a resurrection hope because we have a resurrected Savior. Lord, may we live in light of this hope. May this hope invade our hearts and minds today. And may we be a people characterized by joy because we know that the story ends happily. We thank you for new creation. We thank you for resurrection life. And we ask this in your name. Amen.